Welcome to this eMultiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eMultiple Sclerosis Review. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Mowry, Associate Professor of Neurology and Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And we're here to discuss the impact a patient's choice of disease-modifying therapy can have on their clinical care. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Cellgene Corporation. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss the communications issues that influence patients' disease-modifying therapy decision-making, and describe potential strategies for addressing comorbidities in the clinical care of individuals with MS. Dr. Mowry has disclosed that she was a principal investigator for Biogen Incorporated, Genzyme Corporation, and Sun Pharma. She has also received royalty fees from UpToDate and received free medication from a clinical trial from Teva Pharmaceuticals. She has also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in this podcast. Dr. Mowry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. In your recent newsletter issue, Doctor, you analyzed the current research about the decision-making processes patients with MS go through when selecting a disease-modifying therapy, and in particular, how those decisions can be impacted by the patient-physician relationship. I'd like to start out by focusing on that from a clinical perspective. So let me ask you, if you would please, Dr. Mowry, to set things up with a patient scenario. I saw a 35-year-old woman who had a history of migraine headaches, and she was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, or MS. She'd had symptoms characterized by numbness on her face on one side, and luckily that fully recovered within a couple of weeks without even getting treatment. But she was trying to decide on her first MS disease-modifying therapy. Some considerations include that she has two children already, and she's thinking about whether she would like to have more in the next few years. And her examination showed she was a little overweight. Her body mass index was 25 kilograms per meter squared. Fortunately, her neurologic examination was normal. And we discussed things, and she decided that she wanted to use an injectable therapy. And she was concerned about rare but serious risks associated with some of the other therapies. And she thought that was the most important consideration for her. She's newly diagnosed. She's done some thinking about what her first therapy should be. As this patient's provider, how would you counsel her? That's a great question. Ultimately, I try to remember when I'm seeing a person with MS and trying to advise them that it's that person who actually has to agree to and adhere to the treatment plan we make. And so I always try to consider each individual's factors related to their MS. Were their attacks mild or severe? How many have they had? Where in the nervous system was the attack? And I also try to think about other medical history that might influence the decisions, like do they have a comorbid migraine or depression? What are their life plans with respect to things like pregnancy planning? In this particular newsletter issue, we reviewed an article written by Jamalowitz and all, and we discussed a little bit about the importance of the patient's perspective. In that particular article, a young woman who's never been treated may be like other young women that were evaluated in that article and considering serious risks as important in her decision. In the same newsletter, we also looked at an article by Salter and colleagues, and that article also evaluated how she would like to be communicated with with respect to patient-doctor interaction and the fact that she's young, female, and has not yet used a disease-modifying therapy may indicate she would not want to be told what to do by the doctor, but 
rather would like information tailored to her specific case that would help her make an informed decision. Her initial decision was to take an injectable therapy. What happened next? Well, she was able to take the medication for about six months, but at that time she started to not tolerate the injections too well and decided to stop the medication. Unfortunately, a few months later, she presented to the emergency department with vomiting and ataxia, and the MRI scan of the brain at that time showed a new active MS lesion on the MRI. So fortunately, she was admitted and treated with steroid therapy and the symptoms resolved, but she returned to the clinic to think about her next step. This woman, she discontinued her therapy. She wound up in the emergency department. How did you approach her return to clinic? You know, patients discontinue medications for their multiple sclerosis for a variety of reasons. Ideally, I think it's always nice when the decision to discontinue therapy is collaborative, one that is taken between the patient and the provider, because it provides the opportunity to sort of discuss the individual likelihood of the risks of stopping the medications for that patient. That being said, it's hard to take medications, and it's important for physicians not to blame patients or be accusatory but also to help the patient realize that they do indeed need this disease-modifying therapy. So I really like to make sure that our dialogue is respectful and in those who are stopping therapy to, again, try to plan ahead, engage them a bit regarding how we're going to monitor for return of MS activity, including new lesions on MRI scan or relapses if they're planning not to start on a second therapy, And then set the expectation for what the threshold for resuming or starting a new therapy will be at that time. At this point, she's returned to clinic. What would your priorities be with this patient now? Well, when I saw this patient in clinic again, she'd had testing in the hospital that helped us to think about next steps with respect to therapies. She had had JC virus antibody testing in the hospital, which was negative, as were the screening labs for hepatitis B, HIV, and tuberculosis. By this time, she decided not to pursue further pregnancies, and so she did elect to try an infusion therapy for her MS, and that was successful without further relapses or new lesions on MRI scan. When we saw her in clinical follow-up, she did endorse some alteration of mood that was consistent with depression. When a patient changes her disease-modifying therapy, what are the key things the provider should be keeping in mind? For any given patient, the ratio of benefits to risks informing the initial treatment decision could change as time goes on. We learned in the Jarmalowitz article that I reviewed in the newsletter that both expected benefits and risk are important to patients in considering their treatment options. We also know that in many of our patients, their desires to pursue pregnancy in the near future are quite relevant, both for first and subsequent treatment decisions. Many of the MS medications must be stopped prior to attempting to conceive, which raises the issue, particularly for some of the higher efficacy medications, of the risk of severe rebound of MS activity after discontinuing the therapy, which definitely factors into treatment decision-making for women in particular who are considering these medications. When we're considering a treatment switch due to breakthrough disease of the MS despite adherence to a first-line therapy, meaning the medication really isn't working optimally, we have to think about these contributors to the benefit-risk ratio a little differently than if the treatment switch is simply due to intolerance. And since serious risks are important to patients as well as the physicians who are working with them, consideration of stratifying risk for specific medications is really important. 
For example, we typically consider testing for JC virus antibody status, at least hepatitis B testing, as well as tuberculosis testing to help us understand the risks of infusion medications. So for this patient specifically, what other things would you want to discuss with her in clinic? Well, it's still important even if the person is not having disease activity in the form of relapses or new lesions to monitor for adverse effects associated with the therapy, to monitor to make sure we're not missing disease activity that's subclinical. But when patients do have the disease under good control, we really focus on symptom management and preventing comorbidities. This patient does have a history of overweight based on her body mass index, as well as depression. And so I would spend a good bit of time addressing these factors, as well as to think about how to prevent further weight gain and improve exercise. Her depression. You mentioned that she did endorse it when she returned to clinic after her initial DMT discontinuation. How would you address that? Depression is a really common comorbidity for people with multiple sclerosis, and certainly I would discuss antidepressant therapies after assessing her, of course, for the severity of the depression and for any suicidal ideation. However, emerging evidence is suggesting, at least in small pilot studies, such as that by Fitzgerald and colleagues that was reviewed in the newsletter, that, for example, calorie restriction or weight loss were linked with improvements in depression. Similarly, exercise has been shown to improve depression in people with multiple sclerosis. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Ellen Mowry from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in just a moment. You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine e-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with multiple sclerosis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, focuses that expert perspective on translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for e-multiple sclerosis review is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For more information about e-multiple sclerosis review, please go to our website, emsreview.org. And one more thing. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you. Welcome back to this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Ellen Mowry from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine about how better understanding the issues that influence patients' DMT decision-making can improve clinical practice. So to continue in that vein, let me ask if you would please, doctor, to bring us another patient scenario. So the next patient I saw was a 55-year-old man. He's had multiple sclerosis for 10 years and has a past medical history of prediabetes as well. On examination, his blood pressure was 135 over 90, his body mass index was 35 kilograms per meter squared, and his neurologic exam showed an EDSS score, or Expanded Disability Status Scale, score of 3.0 because he had some weakness in his legs. He has been on an oral disease-modifying therapy for about five years and has not had a relapse or a new lesion on brain MRI in that entire time and asks whether he should continue on the therapy. So here's a patient who's asking you, in essence, I've been doing pretty well. Do I need to continue on my therapy? 
What's your initial response? We often think about the importance of making therapy decisions with patients in the context of starting a new therapy. However, continuing therapy is also an ongoing decision. And we know from natural history studies that things like relapses and the development of new lesions on MRI scan, which is what the medications work best for, decrease with age. We also know that as people use therapies for longer periods of time or as they age, it's also possible that serious adverse events associated with use of the therapies increase. So what kind of guidance can you provide? I think it's important to be straightforward with our patients. We would really like it if there were a magical age cut point above which a person's risk of a relapse or a new lesion was gone, where we could say, yes, you can definitively stop your therapy at this time. In reality, we know that the risk of new activity with MS decreases gradually with age, and it is very patient-specific. For example, I have one person in their 80s who actually developed new lesions on annual MRI scans. So it's quite difficult to advise people in this situation. I'm hopeful that from the ongoing clinical trial called DISCO-MS, which is randomizing people with MS previously stable on therapy to either discontinuing that therapy or staying on it, that we learn some information about discontinuing therapy for many of our patients in the clinic. You know, whether people enrolled in that trial will be representative fully of all the patients with MS we're currently caring for, especially those who are taking therapies that are associated with the risk of rebound after discontinuing the therapies remains to be seen. What we did learn from the Salter article that was reviewed by me in this newsletter is that increasing age as well as male sex may mean that the patient is more in favor of a physician-centered decision-making approach. We also learned, again, from an article reviewed in this newsletter by Jarmolowitz, that a patient's consideration of treatment is influenced both by their perceived risks as well as benefits. And while the applications of these concepts to continuing therapy decisions need more study, I would in this case suggest reviewing the risks and benefits of discontinuing therapy with the patient, trying to explore what his concerns were, and hopefully helping him make a decision with which he's comfortable. Very good. Now, a different question about this patient. He's a middle-aged man, an older middle-aged man, actually, with a 10-year history of MS and a past medical history of prediabetes. What would you advise him about reducing his risk of disease progression? What does the evidence say? We learned in the article I reviewed in this newsletter by Zhang and colleagues that ischemic heart disease and possibly diabetes are associated with greater subsequent disability as measured by the expanded disability status scale in people with MS. And this finding is really in line with prior studies that demonstrated that obesity-related comorbidities or illnesses are linked with worse outcomes for people with MS. It's not known if modifying these comorbidities can reduce the risk of progressive MS, but in the absence of data from a randomized clinical trial, I think it's certainly worthy of discussion with individual patients. So personally, I screen all patients with MS for modifiable factors related to obesity and the risk thereof and I counsel them to intervene on those risks. Modifiable risk factors related to obesity. Uh, tell us more about what that kind of intervention might be like. Is there a special, what should I call it, a special MS diet? There is not a definite MS diet, although there are a lot of websites suggesting this to be the case. We do know that a generally healthy diet, such as a Mediterranean-style diet or something in that spectrum, does tend to be associated with the reduction of obesity-related comorbidities in people at large, not specific to multiple sclerosis. 
So absent food intolerances or allergies, I do typically counsel my patients to start there, recognizing that this hasn't been proven in randomized trials for people with multiple sclerosis specifically and is not an FDA-approved diet per se. For some people with MS, especially if they're morbidly obese, I do think about suggesting a nutritionist. Many of our patients also don't see their primary care providers as regularly as they might need to. And our primary care colleagues are actually trained in primary and secondary disease prevention. So I think encouraging a good working relationship with these providers is really important. In this particular gentleman's case, his elevated blood pressure and his hemoglobin A1C need attention, especially if they persist despite his improvements in diet and exercise. We also saw in the Ellen Chuck article reviewed in this newsletter that exercise is associated potentially with reduced obesity-related comorbidities, so quite relevant to our patient population. Exercise has also been linked to reductions in fatigue and depression, which is really great for our patient population since those are common and can be quite disabling. Finally, based on studies in other populations, exercise may be neuroprotective. So I definitely discuss that regularly with my patients. And finally, another lifestyle factor relates to sleep. So there's an increasing recognition of the importance of sleep and maintenance of the circadian rhythm. And their importance has been highlighted as possible MS risk and prognostic factors. We know that sleep disorders, including obstructive sleep apnea, are common in people with multiple sclerosis. So I often screen for concerns for that and refer for sleep evaluations if there are any concerns and otherwise counsel my patients about healthy sleep habits. So in summary, doctor... I think this case really brings to light for providers who are taking care of patients with MS that we don't just think about their MS in isolation. We really need to take into account all of his or her comorbidities and to try to help them reduce those comorbidities to optimize outcomes. Thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Mowry. I've got one more question for you, and it's future-oriented. The newer research. In your opinion, where should it be focused to provide the most benefit to patients with MS? Doctor? One focus that research really needs to take is to assess how to reduce comorbidities effectively in this specific patient population. People with MS are often dealing with depression, fatigue, cognitive issues, and physical disability, all of which potentially could influence whether strategies that are used in people at large will actually be effective with respect to reducing obesity-related comorbidities. Future research really is also needed to improve the understanding of neurologists regarding how to help people with MS make decisions with respect to starting, switching, and stopping therapy. An important research question also is to evaluate some of the treatment decision issues in people who are actually and actively making these decisions in real time. I think also studies need to ensure that the population they're including is very representative. For example, including people who have varied socioeconomic backgrounds and racial backgrounds with varying degrees of support at home from loved ones and others, and those who have taken medications with or without good adherence. That way, we'll be able to ensure the results of the studies are generalizable to the greater population of people with multiple sclerosis. Thank you, Dr. Mowry, for sharing your insights. I'd like to wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. So to begin, our first learning objective, the communication issues influencing patients' disease-modifying therapy decision-making. Doctor? So I think we learned today that people with MS have many concerns with respect to choosing their disease-modifying therapy. 
we learned that like other studies, the Jamalowitz article that was reviewed in the newsletter did suggest that efficacy is important, but also highlighted that risks are important and that particularly serious safety concerns of a medication are crucial for people with MS, at least in their consideration of a therapy. We also learned that when patients stop a medication and need to change or resume treatment, it's important to be collaborative and non-judgmental in order to best re-engage the patient in selecting their next therapy. Reassessing the benefits and risks with the patient are really important steps for that individual treatment decision. And finally, we also learned that even people with longer standing MS who are on a therapy consistently still need to engage in ongoing dialogue surrounding the decisions to continue that therapy versus stop the therapy, really considering their specific benefits and risks that may include things like how old they are, as well as the given therapy that they're taking at the time. And our second learning objective the potential strategies for addressing comorbidities in the clinical care of individuals with MS. Doctor? I think we learned here that comorbidities, especially those that relate to obesity, such as diabetes, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, are actually becoming more and more critical with respect to thinking about long-term prognosis in people with multiple sclerosis. And of course, these same comorbidities also influence other health outcomes, including heart disease, stroke, and cancer. So it's important for providers in the neurology clinic to ensure that that's part of their care plan as well. We discussed some common sense approaches, for example, with diet, thinking about promoting a healthy diet like a Mediterranean-style diet, thinking about referring to nutritionists, encouraging exercise, and screening for sleep health issues, as well as for sleep apnea. So I think even at a minimum, what we can say is that even if a neurologist is too busy in his or her practice to tackle these issues themselves, make sure that you're encouraging patients to follow up with their primary care providers or perhaps even providing issue-specific referrals to other specialists as needed. Dr. Ellen Mowry from the Department of Neurology and Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in today's eMultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eMultiple Sclerosis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. This activity has been developed for the MS care team, including neurologists, nurse practitioners, nurses, physician assistants, and other healthcare providers who care for patients with MS. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eMultiple Sclerosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.emsreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. 
Use of the name of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine implies review of the educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. A multiple sclerosis review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Celgene Corporation. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.